Hello and welcome to another edition of the From the Clubhouse podcast. My name is Tom Irwin and I'm joined this week by a very poorly sad-faced Steve Cameron. I'm never sad-faced, Tom. I wouldn't say I was very poorly either. Under the weather. Bit of a cold. You've got a very, 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 very bad case of man flu, haven't you? I don't think we need to go into any graphic details yesterday, but you were unfortunate enough to see me in full flow, weren't you? Literally. Well, yesterday, yesterday you did actually have to leave our one-to-one to go and blow your nose, which was definitely a first. It's more to repair my nose, but I, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't get into the details, really. It was quite strange. Um, anyway, on that bright note, this podcast is, as ever, brought to you by our sponsors and friends at TaylorMade. You've been having a good week, because Colin Morikawa was back in the winner's circle, breaking a two-year two year winless drought. Is that, is that a drought? No. Can you describe two years as a drought? for a player of his ability. Um, if John Rahm didn't win for two years, I think people would say it was a drought. If Rory McIlroy didn't win for two years, people would say it was a drought, wouldn't they? I mean, there was a. Where do you go? Where Where do you go from drought? Like England haven't won the World Cup since 1966. What's that? That's apocalyptic. <laughs> yeah. It's not just a drought, yeah, is it? That, that is the word I was going to use. Um, what do you think about Rory McIlroy's ten-year major drought? Then I mean, that, that's definitely more than a drought, isn't it? That's what I mean. I don't understand how that can be a drought and also a two-year. I don't think a two-year. I don't think you can say two-year windless. I think can you say windless streak or is that the opposite of streak? Is two does two constitute a streak? I think you'd probably have to number of tournaments, wouldn't you? I don't know. I mean, it just seems strange that drought seems to cover like sort of two years, but also fifty years. I think we need another word. I think we've. I think anyway. it's very early for us in this podcast to get off the point. <laughs> the point is that Colin Morikawa has won again using TaylorMade golf equipment. He shot sixty-three in the final round in Japan. Who knew that the Zozo was in Japan? Certainly not me. Uh, with a full bag of Taylor Mays. He's got a very mixed bag, uh, hasn't just... he? He has got a <laughs> it's, there's some, there's some, you can't, there's some music. The thing you can use, you can't, you can't use the term mixed bag in that sense because mixed bag has got sort of negative connotations, hasn't it? He hasn't got mixed bag, no. has he? He's obviously got very balanced and well put together, fitted for him. Bag. What I meant by that here is, in in terms of the product timeline, he has something of a mixed bag because he still uses the sim, doesn't he? He does use sim driver and sim three wood, so we won't dwell on that. But he's got Stealth 2 5 wood, uh, and he's using P770 irons, same as me. Uh, he's just using them to slightly better effect, and he's got some MG4 wedges. Um, I, they they cause me considerable sort of turmoil, the P the P irons, you know, particularly those ones that you've got, because they're, they're just beautiful, and the ones that I want to play, but unfortunately, I'm not good enough to play them. Every time I go for a fitting, I sort of lust for a set of P790s and then realise they're like 15 yards shorter than the stealths. <laughs> I just go, right, I'm go- I'll have the stealths. I really love the P790s. Yeah. They're such a good-looking club. Yeah. I think it's an hiatus, isn't it, rather than a drought? Well, Well, good work getting us back in focus there. Quite a lot of people. Well, so I was away last week, right, in uh, Lisbon. 
You've been to Lisbon? I have many, many years ago. Beautiful city. Amazing place, isn't it? It's sort of ubiquitous. It's like universally popular. No one's got a bad word to say about Lisbon. Uh, I'm going to join in. I think it's really cool. I went for a run on the world's longest boardwalk. I went to a thing called the Time Out uh, Food Court, which was like sponsored by Time Out, which has to be like basically the most cliched cool thing in the world. It's like kind of like quite meta, isn't it? When a tourist guide creates a tourist attraction. It's got one of the world's great bridges. Yeah, yeah. I think it's got two actually, because we like lived right near one that was pretty epic. And it's amazing. There's like an amazing. Um... Oh, there was when I went, albeit it's a long time ago. There's an amazing area where you can sort of eat and drink under this bridge. I think it's called like the Bridge of the Revolution or something like that. Right. Uh, anyway, so I get there, get on the bus to get from the airport to the hotel, and I meet uh, Ashley from Dundonald on the bus, right? I am aware of his work. First thing, first thing he says is, oh, you're hiring golf clubs. I said, how do you know that? He said, listen to the podcast and I. That, Steve, is fame. You've, you've always got to be careful now about who's listening. <laughs> I'm going to have to remember that next time I'm in a, in mid-rant, which I could well be anyway, at various was, stages of this I was, pod. I was recounting this incident to someone else on, who I was chatting to this week, and, and they said, what's this podcast? And I said, it's our podcast called From the Clubhouse Podcast. I said last week's was pretty good. Did you have to sit through 15 minutes of Steve recounting how he amassed 31 points in his club stable fit? But after you get through that, it sort of gets going. Uh, anyway, we are going to talk about your golf, aren't we? Well, I don't know now. I'm pretty insulted by that. Well, we can talk about my golf. So I played last week. It's brilliant. Did you? I forgot how good it was. Have yeah, you yeah. put a card in? No. I hired. It was, a, it was a scramble. You can't put a card in in a scramble. All right, I'll let you off. Yeah. Uh, pretty amazingly good scramble actually you played a Penalonga you've been there no why you, you sort of just you just turned yourself off you're not even listening I know I'm, I'm, I'm getting myself ready for the inevitable questions about my handicap and I've just noticed that the England Golf My EG app has changed yeah I've noticed that it's got some like uh, spammy sort of different types of eye golf you can yeah but, uh, you can now filter in the main menu by golf course or by scores on your own scores, which is quite okay. quite interesting. I'll have to play around with that. Anyway, I was listening. Excellent. Anyway, so I played at Penalonga, European institution that it is. The um, one which I basically said, I haven't heard of. And you went, how have you not heard of this course? Yeah, yeah. It's like saying you haven't heard of Alderama. I'm, I'm still none the wiser. Anyway, it was lovely. Like proper old school European sort of lots of trees and dog legs and all the rest of it. Very good greens. Obviously, I was in Lisbon, so it chucked it down with rain. Um, but it stopped raining after three or four hours, and it was really good. I played with Ian Knox off the European Tour Properties. Lovely guy, member at Port Rush. That is a course. Yeah, that, that, well, I have been there. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I have been there, Tom. Yeah. Yes. I'm aware of Port oh. Rush's charms. Yeah. I had two people from Spain. Uh, and it was brilliant. We were like about as gazillion under on the front line, then got very cold putter and finished nearly last. Apart from that, it was good. I hired some PXGs, PXG, uh, which my golf was all right. Yeah, uh, so I'm going to play a bit of golf, have a golf lesson, and then next week I'm going to Turkey to Max Royale, so I'm going to play golf there, and then I've got a confession to make to you. This doesn't sound good. 
I've accepted that Mauritius trip. Have you? Well, I, I mean, I did send it in your direction, thinking that you would probably vacuum it up. <laughs> I don't think we should dwell on that. Anymore. No, we, we, we really shouldn't dwell on the freebies that come into the NCG office. I, I just wanted to say, before we get on, that because um, I think it's fair to say over the course of the year or so that we've been doing this podcast, I've fluctuated in terms of my passion for playing golf. Um, but I am now mm-hmm. very firmly back in the keen and enthusiastic stage to the point you can always tell, Tom, when I am enthusiastic about golf because I start buying golf stuff. I don't, I don't, I mean, you say you fluctuate in terms of your enthusiasm. It's, it's a very kind of like tight little bubble that you live in there, isn't it? As in, you're not. There's no zero, is there, on the scale, on the Steve scale? I don't know. There was. It got pretty close at one point in the middle of the year. Um, no. I didn't play a lot. I didn't play from. I didn't play for like six weeks in the summer, which is unheard of for me. Um, but anyway, um, I, I, obviously, I've joined this new club. Everyone knows. Well, I've rejoined this club, and I am massively enthusiastic about getting up there. I've even entered the winter foursomes. Uh, right. So you've been putting in every score this year. Under the new WHS system, come fair wind or foul, competition or casual, you yeah. have been submitting it. Since May and, the 20th. And this started when we made a pact that we would both submit all of our scores. One of us did it, one of us didn't. All right, let's not dwell on that. Uh, and you've now concluded that effort, have you? Because you're stopping when the clock's going back, but you're not playing before then. Yeah, it's my daughter's birthday this weekend, so there will be no golf. Um, right. And that will bring the clocks and the month of October to an end, and so hath ended my handicapping journey. I think it, I think it ended up being 22 rounds, 23 rounds. It's a pretty good effort. How many weeks is that? Sorry, since when? End of May. 21, 22, just counting them up. 22 rounds. We start, I started on May the 20th, Saturday, May the 20th. Uh, might so be it's 20, like 20 weeks, but once a, it's once a week, basically. Pretty much, which was a particularly impressive effort since I did not play between July the 2nd and August the 6th. Yeah, so let's just get back to reasons. the start of this when you said your sort of appetite for golf does fluctuate. It doesn't, it doesn't deviate far from the mean, which is once a week, which makes you a core golfer. So let's just get that right. It's pretty, right, it's pretty, so, it's pretty low fare can, compared to what I used to play. I used to play every Saturday and Sunday and a midweek without fail. Responsibilities now, Steve. You've got a daughter. You've got a team to manage. You've got cold to contend with. You spend half your life at Ayrton Park, whatever it's called. <laughs> What's um? Uh, so come on, what 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 did you start on? What was your index at the start? Ten point nine. Okay, and what is the lowest your index has reached during this window? Uh, 10.7. And what is the highest your index has reached? 12.2. Jesus Christ. And what are you on now? Uh, 11 dead, 11.0. It's exciting, that, isn't it? And that's 21 rounds worth. Yeah, like 22 or 23, I'd have to count them up. So all of your counting rounds, all of your eight counters from your last... 20 they're all in the last whatever we said five months uh yeah the my, my last my, my oldest counting round is from june the 4th 
So we were right. one, two, three, four in at that point. And my most recent counting round was a rather tasty 80 at York on the 8th of October. Not as good as it, 80. Ten, plus 10, all right for me. So when, so given that you're the sort of the, the particular type of plonker who likes to say that you're better than your index, are you now accepting that you are in fact an 11.0 handicap golfer given that you've played all that golf, submitted every card, and that's just where you're at? Well, it's hard to argue with numbers, isn't it? That's um, a bit, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, I used to be a single-figure golfer. I'm not a single-figure golfer. I am two shots away from being a single-figure golfer. Well, not two shots, am I? 1.1. Yeah, I think you're the sort of Christian Eriksen of the high single figures, aren't you? You mean sort of don't do anything for ages and then spring in a match-winning performance? I don't mean that you've come back from the dead. I mean that you... uh sort of used to be playing at a slightly higher level but now things have caught up with you a little bit you still got it on your day uh so you're sort of a good squad man I it's guess. probably yeah, it's probably fair enough um right okay so what you got to tell me about this whole exercise um what are your three what what have we learned give me three things that you have learned from submitting every card that if you put every score in your handicap will work itself out I mean, I've had, I've had some pretty awful scores in there, Tom. I've had, I mean, I've had like the worst score in there was a couple of ninety fours, but I had then another ninety, a ninety, a ninety one, a ninety, a ninety two in my last outing. I've played some pretty bad golf in this stretch, but I also had two seventy eights and an eighty. Um, have you played on? Have you played on like quite a significant spread of courses? Or your Irish rounds are in there, aren't they? Yeah, I played on a lot of different courses. I mean, you're going to ask me to count them up now, aren't you? Uh, one, two, three, four. This is not good for podcasting. Five, mm. six, seven, eight, nine. I played on ten different golf courses through the period. It's pretty amazing. And what about weather? Have you played in any like horrific conditions? No, I got a bit lucky in that respect. I didn't play in anything that was particularly. I played in wind a lot. Um, funnily enough, I think the only time that I ever got a PCC. Um, was at Hartlepool, um, and I played at Hartlepool twice, and I think there was a PCC of two each time I played there. Yeah, a PCC of one and a PCC of two. But I didn't play in any particularly driving rain. I played in some rain, um, but not through 18 holes. Played in a lot of wind, but played across a stretch of different courses. Played off white tees, played off yellow tees, depending on where I was. I played, obviously, white tees at Close House, yellow tees as a visitor at... Um, at um, courses that I went to throughout there, and I played off obviously white and yellows at York, so a, a fairly decent stretch of different tees as well. And my handicap is, I mean, if you look at it, take all the scoring out, right, um, the, the highs and the lows of the actual numbers, but if you look at my line of handicapping across those 20 rounds, it's pretty straight. It's a pretty straight line. It's actually helped my golf, Tom, in, in, in some way, because I have actually got out of the delusion now of being a single-figure golfer. I was a single-figure golfer for a couple of years, and I'd got used to being one, and I got used to thinking of myself as one. So obviously when I when I joined York, and I went on a pretty heavy slump, to be honest, um, it was pretty hard to take. You know, It didn't do my self-confidence a lot of good, basically getting increasingly rubbish at golf. Um, but over these 20 rounds, I appear to have found my level 
I don't think you can argue with the numbers there. It is a straight line, pretty much, if you look at my graph, 10.9 to 11. So, I mean, that, so that is one learning, isn't it, that people, I think, get very fretful about submitting cards if the conditions are sort of less than perfect or if they're playing away from home or whatever else, or if they don't feel like they're in particularly good form. But you've started this exercise at 10.9, you've finished at 11. So, I mean, that is sort of quite a significant sort of um, evidence to suggest that if you just go out and do as you sort of asked to do and submit as many cards as possible, you are going to end up pretty much where you started or where you should be based on your form. Yeah. Go on then, what else? What sort of, what kind of faces have people been playing pulled? Um, all right, generally. Um, all right. I mean, so what I did was, um, but obviously my, my friend who I played with at, at Close House and I rejoined Close House with, um, he was my partner across many of these sort of... I did a tour of the Northeast, basically. Um, played Hartlepool and Bishop Auckland and see him in places like that. And he was my partner throughout those trips. He was my playing partner. So in that sense, it was pretty easy because he understood what I was doing. He was obviously a MyEG app member as well. He has an official handicap, so it was quite straightforward. Even if he didn't want to put a score in himself, it was quite straightforward for him to be the marker. Um and to verify my scores. And he understood what I was doing and um, and didn't have any judgment about that. Um, I very rarely found myself, because I've played mostly away from York, um, which until I joined Close House was my home club in terms of handicapping, um, I very rarely played there in the sort of friendly setting where I would get into trouble. So I played. So a couple of my rounds at York have been with Dan Murphy and been with Tom Buller who obviously we work with, and they wanted to put scores in themselves on those days at York. So it was it was quite easy. I, I think I only really once or twice found myself in a situation where I was playing a social round with other members. I was playing a round, sorry, that I wanted to count for handicap with other people who were playing a social score. It didn't really happen much. So there wasn't, there wasn't a huge amount of awkwardness, Tom. Well, that's good because I think I would – be panicking about that. And I always, I always sort of, um, kind of very conscious when you're playing in a group and you kind of want to hole out for whatever reason. It might even be like a, a four ball where you're playing a match play, but you're also keeping a card, and everyone else has sort of moved on to the next tee because the hole's concluded, and you're there, sweating over your three footer. Um, I think that sort of thing is one of the the sort of big barriers for me is that you don't want to be doing something that's at odds with what the rest of the group's doing. Um, and I guess that comes back to this point about it'd be much better if everyone was doing the same thing, right? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, okay. And what do you think about, so you mentioned earlier, you think it's had a good effect on your golf. So how has it kind of changed your sort of view on competition rounds? Because I guess some of the sort of pomp and ceremonies removed from that, from a competition day, if you're always submitting a card. Yeah. So I talked about this a little bit when we did our update about six yeah. weeks ago. Um, I, yeah. I, I no longer think about, competitions as competitions in the way that I did the line is just completely drawn um so you know if I if I started with a double in a competition you could guarantee I was going to have a bad day um because I hated the fact that I'd got off to a terrible start now it really just doesn't bother me too much um so there is there is certainly I I think I've performed better in some competitions as a result of putting every score in because I'm not that bothered. And, you know, I've won a competition this year. I won the second day of the annual handicap medal. Um, 
I won, um, I, I came uh, placed the following week in another competition. You know, I mean, I, I sort of think if you win a competition, that's a pretty good year for you as a club golfer. Yeah, yeah massively. But so particularly your, your competition, your... your competition performance has sort of improved. So, have you? Which way has it gone in terms of your sort of pre-round attitude? Are you now preparing better for casual rounds, or are you not preparing as much for competition rounds? It depends on the facilities. Um, if I, if I'm playing at York, I can prepare better because the practice facilities are more accessible. I, I've, as I say, I keep saying I've just joined Close House. Close House is a phenomenally popular academy, um, so I've, I've not actually been able to get onto the academy yet because every time I've driven down there, the couple of times I've driven down, the, yeah, the couple of times I've driven down for a competition, the academy's just been completely full. As I've driven up, so I haven't been able to prepare in the way that I would like. I do like to have a good warm up and hit some balls beforehand. That doesn't have to be for me, Tom, ten minutes beforehand, but it has to be on the day. I have to sort of be going in there thinking I'm hitting the ball all right, and I don't know what I'm going to do there. I'm going to have to sort of think about maybe visiting the driving range before I go up and just getting into the swing of it. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's quite that's pretty good. We are going to have to um, start having some sort of bell that goes off every time you mention closed house. Yeah, we can sorry. start to have a bet on how many times it gets mentioned in each podcast. Uh, sorry, I think, I think it's cute. Uh, so I think that's pretty cool. That is pretty cool that you've done that. Are you going to keep it up? No. What? No. I mean, I'm Why looking not? for. I am looking forward to just playing some rounds for the sake of having a knock again. I would say that I think I'm probably going to play because of the golf course that I'm playing competitions at now. Uh, I'm probably going to play more qualifiers during the winter, qualifiers in inverted commas, because obviously they're not called that anymore. Because I, like at, at Strensel, the white tees go after this weekend and there's a winter rated course. Um, you can put in scores, um, but their competitions generally haven't historically been classed as counting because they give people the option of dropping the ball in the rough first cut so we play with mats in the winter right at Strensel. so after the end of this weekend we'll be off mats until the end of march um, but they do give people the opportunity to drop in the rough as well and as a result competitions aren't counting rounds up the road um it appears to me although i'm still new um the white tees stay out. So, for example, I was talking about the winter foursomes earlier, right? They're over the white tees. They're played over the white tees. So I think there are going to be far more opportunities to play in rounds that count for handicap. There's also, from what I can see, like every weekend a sweep, like on a Saturday and a Sunday it looks like, and it looks to me like those sweeps will count as well towards handicap. So I think just by playing a few more, a few competitions over the winter, just when I'm up there, because I do like to be competitive, that I'm probably going to put more scores in for handicap. But if I was just, if I'm just playing at York, then no, I won't. Well, I think fair play to you for doing it. I'm amazed that you uh, have just gone through all of those uh reasons that it's kind of like got so many virtues and you've enjoyed doing it to then find out you're not going to bother in the future but it sounds like you are going to submit a sort of very high number of cards probably but probably playing overall more golf absolutely i just don't want it to be every card um there, there were times during this time particularly when i wasn't playing particularly very well that i did find it a bit of a fatigue 
putting every score in because you like you're not playing particularly well. You just want to go and have a knock. You just want to try and find something in your game and try and sort it out. And here I was putting a score in that counted every time. So like every shot counted, every putt counted. I did find that a bit wearisome. Um, I, I think uh, there's a balance in all of these things. And you're right. I will absolutely put more cards in not just because I'm playing more competitions, although that, that will be part of it. I think it's because sometimes I'll go to a course and I'll just fancy it um, and I'll think about it in a way that I didn't before. I would never have put a general play score in before. Um, just would. I mean, I'd done it, I think I'd done it half a dozen times in the entirety of World Handicap. I'm far, far more likely now when I go to an away course to put a score in just to try and sort of accentuate the experience of it. Although I do think and I think we've talked about this before, that comes with its own questions regarding handicapping because I, I, I do think it's easier to play rubbish at an away course than it is at your home course, familiarity and all that sort of thing. Um, but I am definitely going to play more social scores and I am definitely going to play more competition golf. So you will see in 2024 and through the remainder of 2023 that I'll have more scores in my handicap. I just won't be doing it every single time. Yeah, fair enough. That's good. And you've also, haven't you, been writing about these DP World Tour changes, which you're really not happy about, are you? Uh, I, yeah, I wouldn't. Not. I'm. I'm a journalist, Tom. I'm an observer. I don't. I don't get myself, you know, too hit up about about all of these things. But I do think it's interesting. So this is the news that um, the DP World Tour and the PGA Tour's strategic alliance has taken a new step. And the DP World Tour are going to offer full membership for players, PGA Tour players, who finish 126 to 200th on the fall points list at the FedEx Cup. So arguably those who don't make their cards on the PGA Tour. And they're going to offer affiliate membership um, for those other PGA Tour members who play in a Race to Dubai tournament next year. So... Um, there's going to be a new category, a non-member Race to Dubai points list, where players will be able to earn points um, for the Race to Dubai, and they'll be able to play in the DP World Tour playoffs um, and benefit from the season-ending bonus pool if they play more four or more counting tournaments outside of the majors. Um, and full members uh, will also be able to compete from a new specific category. Only five of them um, will be eligible to compete in an event in any given week. So I'll stop reading from the piece that I wrote this morning. Please read it on nationalclubgolfer.com. But this has, and I sympathise with it to a point, this has produced um, an expected reaction, especially when you consider that the strategic alliance, the the 10 cards thing, means that the top 10 players from the DP World Tour Race to Dubai rankings who aren't otherwise exempt can go and play on the PGA Tour. They will get a PGA Tour card. And so this has brought the understandable cries of this is dumbing down the DP World Tour because on the one hand, your best performers are going to understandably go and play on the PGA Tour and Chancellor Arm over there. And yet on the other side of it, here we are offering playing opportunities for, let's be blunt, people who have not been able to maintain their full playing rights on the PGA Tour. Um, so this is brought bought into the narrative of, well, all the DP World Tour is is now is a feeder tour and crikey, wouldn't Seve be spinning in his grave and all that sort of stuff, um, which I sympathise with to a point. Um, I, I do think it is curious that 
on the one hand, you've got a tour that is sanctioning its very best talent to go and play somewhere else. Um, now, you, you can argue correctly that the best players on the European scene will always want to go and play on the PGA Tour because that's where the best opportunities are. That's where the money is, right? It's always been a stepping stone, right? For 20 or 30 years now, the days of Faldo, Woosnam and all that sort of stuff, playing their trade exclusively in Europe are over. Um, but on the other hand, um, I also sympathise with the with the idea that why is the DP World Tour essentially rewarding failure um, by offering people who have not been able to perform to the required standard on the PGA Tour, PGA Tour sorry, a chance to essentially resurrect their careers in Europe? Um, there is a limit on that, on those numbers, which is a sensible limit because I think if they'd opened the floodgates, they would have been they'd have had a real problem with their own membership. But I know you feel differently about this, but I just sort of feel like is it not are, are we do do we just have to accept now that European golf is secondary to American golf? We've seen some changes in the OWGR rankings, which prioritizes the PGA Tour. Now we've got this strategic alliance being sanctioned by the tour themselves, um, which appears to suggest that that is exactly the case that European golf is secondary to the PGA Tour. I think that was a very, very, very eloquent summary of the facts. Thank you. I think so. What I mean, the the, the point of contention is um, the ten spots that the t- the best ten players on the DP World Tour are gaining on the PGA Tour. So essentially, the European Tour are saying goodbye to their best ten players every year, and then the sort of the uh, return of that is that five of the worst inverted commas players on the PGA Tour are kind of given a soft landing onto the DP World Tour. So you've effectively got promotion and relegation from the DP World Tour to to and out of the PGA Tour. And there you are expressing it even more eloquently and succinctly than I did. I'm just trying to, because there's quite a lot to it, isn't there, in terms of all of that categories of nonsense about the race to Dubai, but the big thing is that promotion and relegation element. Um, so I think I'm all for it, basically. And I think that um, during the whole sort of, at the peak of the Liz Ferrara last year, um, what one of the things that was is frustrating, I think, for the golf fan is that there is no natural hierarchy. So you never understand whether what you're watching. Am I watching um, the best event? Am I watching a second tier event? Am I watching something in between? Um, you're never quite sure whether what is meaningful for the players or not. And I think the kind of um, the kind of the be- the big benefit of the strategic alliance, as it were, is it almost creates like a hierarchy of tours throughout the world because there are routes to the DP World Tour from. Um, the Australian got uh, PGA Tour, for example. So you've now got a route, basically, for a golfer in an Australian backwater to make it up the entire ladder onto the uh, PGA Tour with no need for sponsor exemptions or being given a, a hand up. They can do it on playing ability alone. I think that's very appealing to someone who is trying to sort of understand um, where the best golf is being played. Um, and those, so, so everybody working together to kind of achieve that is, I think, to, of, of a benefit to the to the game as a whole. Um, 
I think the alternative is that we had a, we would have we're in a scenario now where the DP World Tour did take the Saudi money three years ago, whenever it was offered, um, and is now a, basically a rival tour to the PGA Tour, and that breaks up that kind of um, that hierarchy and that natural ladder for players to progress, and I think it creates like two competing tours, and that's something very different. Um, so I kind of understand the um, the the people who are sort of harking back to the days of Seve and Faldo and blah, blah, blah. But what was happening then was the same thing was happening as happening now, but it was just happening by stealth, basically. So it was kind of unspoken. People were still going to play in America because that's where the best events were and the biggest prizes were. Um, and then they were coming back here to play in probably more European tour events than they they, they, they do now. But only because that's what, how it was at the time and there wasn't the disparity in terms of value of purse and travel wasn't so easy and blah, blah, blah. So I think you just have to accept the fact that things have changed and actually if you start to view the DP World Tour as the championship and the PGA Tour as the Premier League, then it becomes kind of a lot clearer in your brain. That doesn't mean to say that there aren't amazing golfers in Europe. Of course they are, um, just as there are amazing footballers in the championship. Um, it just means that the the pinnacle of the sport is elsewhere. Indeed, indeed. I mean, I, w- I would argue probably that in the eighties and in the eighties, certainly, um, more European stars would have played in America had they had the playing opportunities to do so. I mean, it was more of a closed shop back then, wasn't it? The PGA Tour, which obviously it isn't as much of a closed shop now. I mean, if you qualify and you get your play, you play, don't you? Yeah. So I, I think. It's eminently sensible once you kind of put your um, sepia-toned kind of um, wistful glasses down and stop sort of harking back to a golden era of European golf that perhaps never really existed in in the way that we think it did. Um, so yeah, and I, I think I think for those players, imagine how meaningful it's going to be for people vying for seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth spot in the race to Dubai to try and win a PGA Tour card next year. And you'd imagine that those people will still play quite a lot of European golf. They're not going to play all of their golf um, stateside for all sorts of reasons. Um, And it will add something to the DP World Tour to have more of the PGA Tour stars playing in more events over here. Do you you think that'll happen? I mean, do you you expect the um, full membership option to be taken up by a number of PGA Tour players who, or, or, I mean... Or do you think that they'll, for those who lose their playing rights, they'll just try and scrap together whatever they can on the PGA Tour and then essentially go and play Corn Ferry? Yeah, it's a bit, I mean, that is a big question mark, isn't it? Because Corn Ferry Percy is obviously pretty high, but it is super competitive. And there are like precedents to people coming over and cutting their teeth, like Brooks Kepka, for example, did it, yeah. didn't he? Um, so I think that playing kind of um, on the Premier Tour over here, um, a variety of venues different types of golf is more of a kind of global tour where you're playing sort of on different grasses, different um, altitudes, blah, 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 different cultures. I think that's been sort of helpful in terms of quite a number of players, golf, uh, rounded golf games. Um, so I think there's, there are quite a lot of pros to it. Um, the other side of it is like, will do, will the genuine stars of the PGA Tour come and play over here? Well, they kind of do, don't they, already in things like the Scottish Open to a lesser extent, um, Wentworth and the Irish Open. But 
certainly I feel like there are there are a handful of events that have been seriously elevated by um players being incentivized or the sort of barriers being pulled down to come in and playing in Rolex events and, and the bigger European tour events. Um, and that is definitely to the benefit of the tour. Like you can't have uh, an amazing full field, all the best players every week. You can only do that at certain times of the year and be able to maximize those events is what I think that's what those are the most viewed events. That's what the worst of the world sees every other week is about creating a living for as many people as possible um, so I think, um, like I say, I'm all for it. I think to have that sort of hierarchy of, um, of global golf where you can progress from one to the other, um, I think is eminently sensible. And you start to view things like the Challenge Tour and the Corn Ferry as the kind of the under twenty three, um, the under twenty threes for their respective tours. Um, and I think that that kind of to me as a sports fan that makes a lot of sense. Mm. Let's see what happens next with Live. Well, I mean, that is like that is just that is the massive question mark, isn't it? And it, it is very strange watching this whole thing play out. So you have things like this strategic alliance, which has kind of been in the offing for a number of years, and it was kind of accelerated to try and um, protect themselves from the threat of live. Um, you kind of expected some of that to go away as the. Um, the alliance between the PGA Tour, the UP World Tour and Live has been kind of um, brought to the forefront and it's something they're also working towards. It feels like a few of the things that the PGA Tour and the European Tour have done to kind of protect themselves from Live are still going on in the background and that's making it harder and harder for this alliance to take place between those entities and Live. So if you look at something like... Um, the Tiger and Rory Monday Night League, like they've contracted quite a few players who would be obvious targets for Liv, like Cantlay and Shoffley, for example. And I think the schedule of one and the schedule of another are just non-compatible. So it's going to make it very difficult for anyone to play in both in both events. So I'm not saying that you can 100% write off anyone that is contracted to the TGL, but you basically can um, in terms of them, them going to Liv because I don't think you can do both. Um and then obviously you've got this stuff around um, live golfers potentially being give, given some exemptions to the Open, um, which seems directly at odds with the um, decision of the OWGR, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, and on top of that as well, I think you've got a very interesting situation with Live this year with regards to free agency. I mean, by by all means, read the piece on our website on on on, on how to explain this because it requires some explaining. Um, but you've got a number of players. I, I was reading a piece um, from the Irish newspapers today with Graham McDowell because he's rumored to be on a two year contract with Live that's come to an end. You know, is he going to be picked up from free agency, or is he going to find himself without playing rights? Um, on live there are a number of those players who sort of signed up to live not every one of them was on huge multi-year contracts like Mickelson and DJ so as they are possibly spat back into the ocean of golf's ecosphere um, it'll be interesting to see what happens with them and what playing opportunities they get whether you know, someone like McDowell has to go back to the Asian tour, whether he's welcomed back onto the DP world tour, that could have some significant consequences, I think, for how these things, how this circular thing goes moving forward. Yeah, well, I mean, as I, as I understand it, free agency on live means free agency within live, where basically the middle chunk of players are being 
um, they're up for draft basically by n- new teams. But but they could not be picked. You know, there's those new happens. those. You don't know. Shrug, shrug shoulders. I mean, I mean, like we we've we've chatted about this. The I, I think it looks like they just won't have a team. They won't be able to play. Right. So I mean, it's quite it, it's quite an odd thing, and and I I have this is my big problem with not just the way that the sort of closed shop of contracted players works, but also um, the kind of structure of these elevated events. So if you finish in the top fifty on the um, in the uh, playoffs this year, you are you're exempt for the um, elevated events next year on the PGA Tour. What I've never understood, and this was the same with World Golf Championships. What I've never understood about it. If you if you qualify for the um, tour championships, let's say you win the players, right, and that gets you into the tour championships in twenty twenty three, but then your golf is just atrocious for the back half of twenty twenty three. You are then playing in the most elevated event the following year, but you can't hit a barn door with a banjo, right? And I find that is what I find very strange about the qualifying criteria for all of this stuff, and it's sort of being played out a little bit on live where. We're told that it's like the golfers of the highest quality, yet Westwood and Keimer have finished basically bottom of the pile, and Mickelson is like very much mid pack, if not lower third. Um, and they're team captains, so they're exempt from being um, relegated or whatever because they are uh, contracted for a number of years as team captains and blah 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 blah. So I don't think I don't think it, this sort of thing doesn't exist on the PJ Talks. It definitely does, but that is my massive problem with this whole thing, is that form is so fleeting in golf. There is no guarantee that Roy McIlroy's golf might just not disappear next year. And he might not be the, a stalwart of the world's top five. He might just he might just drop off a cliff because this happens, doesn't it? You've seen it happen time and time again with players. So I just think that is a big problem with the whole thing of trying to say these are the best players, therefore they're going to play in the best events because that changes week to week. Yeah. Yeah, it really does. Um. So I think this whole drive to try and say golf is an entertainment product, so what we're going to try and do is get the best players playing more regularly against one another, is it's a flawed um, hypothesis because the best players is a massively broad number, like of the top 150 in the world. Anyone could win any week, right? Yeah. Um, so I think that is, that is a, a fundamental problem with the whole thing. Um, and I just keep going back to this whole thing of like the, the the purpose of these professional golf tours is to create playing opportunities for as many people as possible. It is not to make the best twenty five in inverted commas richer. Seems a good place to move on, doesn't it? That's a profound yeah. statement to finish. You don't like this debate, do you? I can sense, I can sense it. No, I do. We've done it. I, I just think, yeah, we've we've exhausted all possibilities with it. I would just only be adding ballast to your already impressive argument. Right. I think it's just because I'll say it louder. <laughs> there's another thing, and there's another thing that we don't agree on, and maybe we do agree on it. I'm not sure. There's these. You said to me this morning, "Oh, there's all these changes at Birkdale we should discuss." And I said that was ages ago, but you reckon they've now announced them. So, Birkdale, historic open venue, hallowed ground, England's number one golf course, according to many commentators, uh, is making some significant changes to its routing. Well, that's a very American way of saying it. Um, it is, is it, making. Is it, is it making changes to its routing, or is it just changing some holes? 
Um, Please explain. I think it's more holes, but um, <clears throat> so um, you will be not surprised to know that this involves Mackenzie and Ebert, um, who appear to have the um, the sort of firm hand on all of most of the open venues. Um, it's amazing, too- isn't it? It's absolutely, it's like absolute yeah. sort of um, what's the word? It's like um, it's like mafia esque, isn't it? We're not contracted, no. But we just happen to work at every open venue. Most of them, and um, they were obviously uh, the the parties that altered Royal Liverpool Hoylake, um, which um, gained some considerable discussion during um, the most recent open that we'll talk about. And obviously, another of their uh, courses is um, that they've been called in to advise on is Royal Birkdale, which was a, I'm sure was a Hawtrey course for many many years, but. Obviously, they've now come in and have a look, had a look at it, and they are, if I can get to the point, um, they are proposing a number of changes. So we're going to have a brand new par three, the fifteenth, um, that will be mixed in between the current fifteenth and sixteenth tee. That will replace the existing par five fifteenth, the fourteenth hole, which is a current par five. Um, the 15th will become the new redesigned 14th hole. The existing 14th green will be converted into a short game area and existing teeing grounds will be kept so they can play it as a 19th hole. Pause there, because that's a lot of information. Um, Ken, sorry, sorry, just start again. Start again on the whole stuff. Stay, start again, we we'll have to write it down. You have to write it down. Crikey. Yeah, go on. All right. So key highlights, so there's probably more than this because they're going to be yeah. altering tees and bunkers pathways. The 15th hole is a brand new par three. Right. That's going to be located between the current 15th and 16th tee. Got you. It will yeah. replace the existing par five 15th. Right. right, that par five will become a newly redesigned 14th, yeah. and the existing 14th green will be converted into a short game area. Yeah. The teeing grounds there will be kept to be played as a 19th hole. Yeah, the current fifth hole will be completely redesigned and will feature some new fairway bunkering. And the seventh hole will be redesigned to become a short par three, and it will have a raised green and fewer bunkers. They're the sort of the key changes, and then they're talking about obviously renovating bunkers, looking at tees and pathways, and so on throughout the rest oh, of yeah. the course. Course chairman Neil Cruikshank said, "The changes at Royal Birkdale reflect our dedication to upholding the club's esteemed reputation while offering a golfing experience that is second to none." We are confident that these alterations will be warmly received by both our members and visitors from around the world. Now, with all these things, proofs in the pudding, you'll have to wait until it's built and go and play it yourself um, to figure it out. But, you know, we had Birkdale not very long ago as our number one in England at uh, at NCG's top 100s, I'm sure of it. Um, And this is quite a lot of change to a course that many people believe to be England's number one anyway. It's largely, isn't it, between Royal St. George's and Birkdale, depending on your point of view. But these are big, big changes to a course that was already considered to be a classic. Um, And what I'm sort of suggesting is, why? What's the point of it? I mean, they would say this is about improving what we've already got, making it you know fit for the modern game etc cetera, etc cetera, making it even better um but you know 
they made these changes at Hoylake, and, and and let's be clear, I mean, they, they have not been universally well received. Um, the the new hull, Little Eye, I think it's the fifteenth for the members. It was the seventeenth at the open. Um, was pretty much rounded on by the pros at, at at the open. We know, we know, because members have told us um, that the hull has not been massively well received by the membership either there's a problem isn't there in terms of elevation with with some hitting the green um there's a new there's a new rankings poll that's come out that we were reading off air with um golf golf's um golf.com's world top 100 where hoylake's fallen significantly down the rankings it's gone down i think 17 spots that's a bit of a fall now you could argue about whether rank you know what relevance rankings have in the other old sphere. They create talking points, if nothing else. But it's a big risk from Burtdale, isn't it, to make these kind of changes, given how hugely in high regard the course was held anyway. Yeah, there's quite a lot to that, isn't there? Um, I think it, it kind of also... Asks ask the question, like, is the experience... Is the sort of history of a venue... Um, diminished if you're then kind of ripping up holes and taking out holes. Yeah, should we mess about with classic courses? Yeah, That's I'm trying to think. Argument, trying to think of um, sort of iconic moments at Birkdale. I feel like we've been in shot iconic uh, Birkdale um, shots over the years quite a few times. There's like Justin Rose's chipping on 18, which won't get changed. There's a chip, Seve's chip between the bunkers that doesn't get changed. But there is Spieth's put on the fifteenth green. Are they are they talking about that becoming a not a par five? Uh, hmm. Fifteenth, uh, the existing par five fifteenth will become the fourteenth. Yeah. Uh, the fifteenth will be a new par three. Yeah, yeah. But the, so the fifteenth becomes a fourteenth. I guess that's sort of fine. The green still exists and blah 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 blah. But I think if you're sort of starting to um, pull out bits of history, basically, and say that doesn't exist anymore, then you are surely sort of diminishing things slightly. Um, I think what's also interesting is that of, often these golf courses are ranked number one um, in their particular territory. Like I think T- Turnbury is one of the best examples of this that um, was is universally ranked in the number one position in GB&I by, by some um, uh, magazines and golf course rankers. It's, it's kind of there or um, county down often. Um, and then Turnbury made an enormous amount of changes to improve it. And that's kind of like quite a jarring thing. It's like, if you're saying this is already the best course and now it's had millions of pounds spent on it to make it better, what is it now? They're they're definitely the best course. So I think everywhere can be improved, which sometimes gets lost in the kind of, um, uh, what's the word, in the sort of hyperbole surrounding certain venues. And I don't think anyone would say that the fifth, for example, at, Birkdale is a particularly strong golf hole and um, it kind of like sits at the side of the property you play um facing a, what is a sort of man-made dune hiding the greenkeeper's sheds is it the dog um, leg right with the pond on the is it the dog leg to the right with the pond on the right the I, don't it's got, I don't know if it's got a pond on the right but yeah it's a, it's a dog leg a left, it's, a left it's right not dog leg it's not a great hole is it you end up hitting iron off the tee don't you because it's, you don't you don't go over the corner it's very poor yeah and I think the the, what they're blessed with at Birkdale is an enormous property where there's an awful lot you could do in an awful lot of different directions. And that that little corner of the, the fourth and the fifth is definitely something that required attention. I think I think um, you make a really good point about 
Turnberry, actually, just before I forget. So sorry to stop you in full flow there. Um, because I don't think anybody would, and Mackenzie and Eber have obviously done Turnberry as well, haven't they? I don't think anyone would argue that Turnberry isn't better as a result of their changes. I, I played Turnberry uh, earlier in the year, and it is phenomenal now. Um, and, yes, yeah, so, I mean, I, it, it, you, you're absolutely right. You know, there are instances where you, know, you can take a very renowned classic course and you can just make it, you can just elevate it into something entirely new as a result of the changes. I don't think you'd argue with Turnberry being better now than it was previously, would you? No, not at all. But I think I think people would the argument that says this golf course is good as must be as good as it possibly can be because it's number ranked number one or it's had an open is kind of flawed because obviously even the very best venues can be improved upon. Um but I think it's a very, very fine balance between um in trying to improve something for the sake of progress and because everything can be made better and then removing something from the experience of going there because you're removing places where iconic shots have been hit hit from and you're removing pieces of history christ you only need to look at the outpouring of the patio on the um, swilcombe bridge as a sort of example which wasn't affecting the playing area at all but that really was not popular was it no no not at all not at all and it was quickly removed so i think that um there's a difference between being the best golf course and being kind of historically and architecturally significant. Um, and I, don't, I, don't, I, I think that is often sort of misunderstood. So I play at um, Mackenzie's first golf course and I think we've got a kind of, we've kind of got a responsibility almost to protect the golf course as it is or as it was intended as a kind of museum piece um, because it's it's Mackenzie's first brain dump and it's kind of the inspiration for what he's gone and done on elsewhere where he would have obviously made mistakes at Old Woodley because it was his first course and he would have um, obviously found things there that have worked and have gone, gone on then to inspire some of the world's greatest golf courses that he designed. And that I think you need to protect that sort of lineage of thinking and say, right, okay, so this is, I think architecturally that, we've got a responsibility to protect that. I'm not sure that's quite the same as some of the venues that we're talking about here because their principal role is to continue to be a test to the world's best golfers um, whilst retaining some of the kind of shot making and um, uniqueness of the links golf offers that the world's best players don't see week, week in, week out. So I think I'm, I'm all for progress at these venues. Um, as long as it's not sort of forsaking some of the historical spots that they they kind of have. I mean, I mean Birkdale's an interesting example anyway because it's it's never been a museum piece, and, and never is, and neither is Hoylake actually. I mean, Hoylake has been changed tremendously throughout throughout history. Um, but Birkdale, you know, one of the iconic holes there is the twelfth. Well, the twelfth is a relatively recent invention as far as Birkdale's concerned, isn't it? I think it's a sixties hole, is it? The, the, the par three there that everybody raves about when they when they go and play Birkdale, the par three twelfth, then the thirteenth tee, um, looking down. But that but that's a relatively recent change in terms of the history of the course, isn't it? It is, yeah. Um, and I think like a lot of a lot of venues, a lot of the open rotor, they are kind of hybrids in terms of architecturally because they have been tinkered with and worked on over the years. They're not they're not something that has been is kind of a sort of hallowed ground of one, one particular person's thinking. And lots and lots of the best venues could be improved. And if you look at sort of County Down, which is always, always number one in the world, 
you play 14 or 15 holes there, which are almost flawless, like the whole thing, the turf, the the challenge they present, the ridiculous views with the sort of mountain of morn in the background. Um, it's kind of otherworldly, but no one would say it doesn't die a bit of a death and could be improved, like the weird pond in the middle of the 17th and stuff like that. So I think that even the very best places um, can be improved. You could argue that they're all the better for having some quirks and some flaws. Um, but, I mean, it is, it is bold, isn't it, some, that Burtdale are doing that? And they've changed the 17th green significantly a few years ago ahead of the Harrington Open, and that wasn't a success. Then they then latterly softened it off. Although Harrington hit one of the iconic open shots to 17, did. didn't they? He did, yeah. But I mean, they have they have softened off the steps in that green because it was therefore then too extreme. So you do have to be careful, don't you, with what you're doing? Yeah, but I think we're uh, we're aligned, aren't we? That it's a, I think it's a it's a risk. It's a risk for Birkdale. I think it's fair to say that. Um, I don't think you have to be negative about that. But when you make changes of this magnitude, it's always going to engender comment, and and it, it they are going to be very very keenly played aren't they when when this work is completed i think it's in two phases i think by the end of 2025 but but as you point out you know golf courses aren't museum pieces and those that and those that have been traditionally we no longer see do we at the very top level of golf because they can't handle the modern game but anymore. that but that is a, that is a dist- i think that is a, a very i'm trying to make that distinction i think some are and some should see themselves as exactly that and they should forget about trying to invert commas provide a test to the best golf because they don't need to they need to provide something interesting and unique to people to play uh all the time and there are very few places that are hosting tournament venues and have to sort of change themselves in order to be relevant i mean one of the things i would say about the routing at burtdale is that you currently walk off the 13th green and then the existing 14th basically gets you to the 15th tee and it's not an amazing par three it's kind of to get you from a to b um you then have quite a long walk from the existing 15th thing to the 16th tee um but that will that will change that and it will be quite a significant walk to get from 13 green to 15th tee unless they move the 15th tee a long way back um and that again sort of speaks to the you've are we setting it up for an open? Are we setting it up for everyday play? But that the routing thing is a big part of your enjoyment of a golf course when you go and play as a layman. Yeah, it'd be really interesting to see. Um, I'll be very keen, as always, to sample the delights when the work is done. I'm sure well, exactly. It's, it's a reason to go back, isn't it? And that's kind absolutely, of, absolutely. We're all, we're all for that. Um, I think we've probably have we done enough here. I've also written down that I wanted to sort of. Brooks Kepka doesn't know whether golf is a sport or not, Steve. I mean, like I'm I'm getting to the point where with Brooks where I've just stopped listening to things coming out of his mouth. because um, he just seems to he seems to just say things for me to crave limelight and publicity. Maybe he does believe all this stuff, but um there, there have been very, very clear studies that show that playing golf is extremely beneficial for your health. Um, I play golf now. It tires me out. I come home and have a sleep. <laughs> <laughs> it feels like it's a sport to me. Um, walking for six hours, I carry in the winter. So walking for four hours, four hours plus with a bag on my back, um, 
you, you have these you have these smartwatches now that show you what you're doing in terms of calories and aerobic activity and fitness and stuff like that. It feels pretty much like a sport to me. I mean, you could argue you could argue whether everything is a sport. I, I just I don't want golf to get down that is darts a sport argument. Well, it's quite. I mean, he, he basically said that he comes in and out with it, and sometimes he thinks it is a sport because um, it helps to be sort of athletic and physically stronger than other people. And then other times he hears his fellow tour players saying they had seven or eight beers the night before they're going out and playing in an event. And how can that possibly be a sport if you can get away with that? I mean, see every single footballer in the seventies and eighties um, for evidence that he can. Um, so his, his basic point is that how can it be a sport if you can be a bit fat and still compete at it, I guess. Um, but, but, he, but he would probably say that baseball's a sport, right? Um, yeah. And yet and yet, there are very different shapes and sizes within baseball, are there not? Yeah. Yeah, there are, yeah. So it, golf requires skill and precision, physical exertion, mental toughness. It's competitive. You need hand-eye coordination. You need endurance. All of these things would make it a sport, right? So yeah. I think I think you need to get back in your box, Brooks. It's definitely a sport, even though fat old men play it. Until he goes on another podcast and has something else he needs to say. He has become quite outspoken, hasn't he? Keep the Kepka cash running in. Yeah. Uh, that was good. Well done. It Did was you enjoy a good that? Debate. Did you enjoy that? I'm now going to lie down. How much is your nose running? Uh, it's not so bad today, actually. Um, as we pointed out earlier, it was very bad yesterday. I'm supposed I'm supposed to have um, I'm supposed to have a COVID and flu jab tonight, and I think I'm going to get turned away for being unwell. Too ill. Too ill to be jabbed. Right on that uh, healthy note, we'll say goodbye. Thanks for listening. That was excellent. Please do subscribe to us on Apple or Android. And we'll see you next week. Cheers, Tom. See you soon.